What would a Canadian from Wishart, Saskatchewan be doing in Akron, Ohio? Well, for Dr. Kathy Fay, the answer is helping to run as the Assistant Director, the Cummings Centre for the History of Psychology. The Cummings Centre is the largest repository in the world aimed at preserving the history of psychology. A lot of Dr. Fay's most recent work involved designing exhibits for the now reopened National Museum of Psychology. Something she found challenging was writing, as an historian, exhibits designed for the general public. It's been a difficult year in that in that respect, and it's it's been really rewarding, though, too, because you have to um, you have to let your ego go, hmm. which has been the hardest part of it for me. Because as I'm writing things, I I find myself getting worried about what other historians will think. And there came a point where I went, you have to let that go because 10 historians are going to visit this museum and 10,000 members of the general public are going to visit this museum. And your concern about your ego and not being a good historian does not outweigh putting on a hell of a museum exhibit. At the end of the day, the important thing is putting on a hell of a museum exhibit. Dr. Fay is also the co-creator of I Am Psyched, an exhibit designed for girls that focuses on the much underrepresented contributions made by women of color to psychology. The idea is we hope to say, we hope to show them, I guess, that women of color are psychologists, um, that they can be psychologists. We want them to see themselves in psychology and feel like it's a welcoming place for them. Um, Part of the good thing about that is just simply then you end up with more women of color in psychology. On this episode of Run It Like a Girl, guest host Jody Cairns finds out how a University of Regina grad from rural Saskatchewan ended up as the assistant director of a major U.S. center for preserving the history of psychology. Dr. Kathy Fay on this episode of Run It Like a Girl. I'm Jody Karens for Run It Like a Girl from the University of Akron in Akron, Ohio, and I'm here today with Dr. Kathy Fay. Hi, Kathy. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Jody. Um, let's start today by I just want to ask you how did you get to Akron, Ohio from Wishart, Saskatchewan? Um, well, the short version is that I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Regina. Um, and then went on to do my graduate work at York University in Toronto. And there I became very interested in the history of psychology. And I was right at the point where I was starting to job hunt, finishing up my dissertation and job hunting. And a position came open in Akron. It was supposed to be a two-year position. So I came down and interviewed for that job, and I did not think I wanted to stay in Akron, Ohio. <laughs> I thought if I got this job, I could handle to live here for two years. Um, and so I was offered the job, took the job here at the University of Akron, and then the job became permanent. And so I've been here now for about nine years at the Cumming Center for the History of Psychology. What's your title here? Um, I'm the assistant director at the Cummings Center for the History of Psychology. Uh, how I spend my time for the most part here is working with donors who want to donate materials to our historical collection. So we run a large archives that preserve the history of psychology. 
Um, so I work with donors to enrich that collection, and I do a lot of various writing projects, design museum exhibits, all that kind of stuff. I'm sure to you the history of psychology sounds pretty intuitive, but can you tell the folks out there what uh, maybe what your research interests are or the sorts of things that um, made you interested in the field in the first place? Sure. Um, I started out in college as an English major, and I loved English. I loved reading texts. I loved analyzing texts. Um, but I didn't think that an English degree was going to be very practical, so I slowly uh, started turning towards psychology courses. Um, and I liked the science of psychology. I found I really enjoyed research. Um, but I kind of missed something that I did in English literature, which was this sort of critical thinking and analyzing of texts and the kinds of stories that you encounter doing an English degree. So when I took my first uh, history of psychology class, I realized that a lot of it was that. It was telling stories and it was analyzing texts. So as a historian of psychology, I study you know, how, how we've tried over the last century or so to explain human behavior, um, to explain the way that we think, the way that we feel, the way that we act. And I think that the ways that we have studied these things tell us a lot about the kind of culture that we live in. Um, so, for example, my research looks at um, how psychologists were involved uh, in policy issues and military work. So, for example, I study how psychologists looked at rumor during World War II, hmm. how psychologists studied... Um, morale during World War II, things like this. Uh, and, and historians of psychology cover a, a wide array of topics, history of mental health care, history of intelligence testing, all these kinds of things. So that's kind of what historians of psychology do in a very broad way. Um, I think the field is really focused on understanding how we categorize people, how we decide who people are. Do you have any... Have you had good mentors along the way? Um, what can uh, you say about your mentorship experience? Yeah, I, I have had good teachers, and I've had good mentors. Um, but I guess what I think is that I, I've, I've learned something different from different people along the way. I've had more pe some people that stand out, but for the most part, I think I took things from each individual person that I would consider to have been a good teacher or mentor. Um, the first teacher in, in college, high school, I don't, well, you know, even in high school, I guess, you know, when I was in high school, I wanted to be a secretary and our high school principal who had, I was a very obnoxious student and probably made his life really difficult, but somehow he still had the kindness to convince me that probably I shouldn't be a secretary and that I should go to college and not trade school. Um, and he basically told me that I would be good at it. And I generally, one of the themes you will find is that I generally uh, believe other people over my own experience. So I went to college. Um, so I kind of have him to thank, first of all. And then once do, you, I, do you want to name him for the podcast? Yeah, his name was Trent Singer. And I wish I could go back and be so much nicer to him. Because <laughs> I, I think that me and, and friends of mine just were not very good students. I have no idea how he saw any talent in me, but he did. But he did. Um, and he, I would have, my whole life would have been different if I, if he had not just sort of said, 
he didn't even have to convince me. He just sort of said, I really think you should apply to university. And I went, okay, you know, what's the register, what's the fee to apply? And I did. And I think I applied, I think I only applied to one college because I didn't really care. I don't know. And then once I got to college, um, to university, I, we talked, uh, Bonnie and I talked a little bit about this. Once I got to university, I had a really hard time my first year. I had been a good student in high school. I had never really tried. Um, I just sort of did all right without putting in very much effort. And I mean, just all right, not great, not terrible, just all right. And then when I got to college, I suddenly felt a bunch of pressure that I had never felt before. No one put that pressure on me. I did, I think, because I, I suddenly knew how much it was costing to be there. And I think I just had a huge fear of failure. Um, so I really struggled in my first year. And then I dropped down to part-time after that and did a lot better. And same thing, I was sort of just stumbling through, choosing a major randomly, not really thinking very hard. And then I um, took a statistics class, psychology statistics. And the instructor, again, sort of um, really was encouraging to me. And he he encouraged me to continue on in psychology. Uh, he was the one who convinced me to apply to graduate school. And Again, another person who sort of changed my life. And the the thing, his name was Don Sharp. The thing about Don that was really good for me, I think, was that he was good at figuring out my strengths and weaknesses. Um, And helping you see them too. Exactly. So he right away kind of caught on to the fact that my talent was writing. And so we would do projects together where he would sort of generate ideas And I would figure out how we could turn that into a paper, how we could turn that into something that would get published. Um, And so I was really, really grateful to him for that because it made me see, not see, but it made me believe in my abilities as a writer. I always kind of felt like a writer, but I don't think I believed anyone else would see me as a writer until, until he and I sort of partnered up. And then he basically from the beginning said, you're better at this than I am, so you do this part. And to have somebody who, um, to me, you know, a professor of psychology, to sort of believe in, in that strength of mine solidified it for me. And that was really, really important for me um, to have someone else validate that. And he, he is the one who convinced me to go to graduate school. Um, again, I think I was going to sell myself a little bit short. I had planned to apply to one graduate school that was very nearby to the undergrad I was attending, and he convinced me to apply to 10 graduate schools. Wow. Um, and, and I'm really glad he did because there's no way I would have applied to the one that I ended up going to. So in your current position, do you still get a lot of opportunity to write? No, I don't. I'm, I keep trying, um... I mean, I do a lot of writing, but I don't do, and I use my talent for writing daily. I mean, it's one of those things I've thought about this a bit. I'm like, am I using my talents? Um, And that talent, I do think I definitely use on a daily basis here, but it's a different kind of writing and it's easier, um, which is okay. But I kind of sometimes miss the struggle that comes with putting together a whole narrative. So I do a lot of writing for the public now, I think, um, and that that's more difficult for me in some ways than academic writing. So I definitely miss writing. I feel like writing is writing is my superpower. <laughs> mm. I know 
that uh, right now or recently you've spent a lot of time writing museum exhibitions. You want to talk about that for a minute? Sure, yeah. It's been a complicated process for me because I am an academic at heart and I can't, uh, I've been out of that role for all intents and purposes for quite a while now, probably 10 years. And um, it's been very difficult for me to write museum exhibits um, because as a historian, everything is about nuance. Everything's about context. Um, everything is about, for me as a historian, everything's about critical thinking. And you have to find ways when you're writing museum exhibitions to keep true to yourself in those respects, while also creating an exhibit that people who are not historians and are not psychologists are going to want to pay attention to. So it's definitely been difficult. It's been a difficult year in that, in that respect. And it's, it's been really rewarding though, too, because you have to, um, you have to let your ego go. Hmm which has been the hardest part of it for me because as I'm writing things, I, I find myself getting worried about what other historians will think. And there came a point where I went, you have to let that go because 10 historians are going to visit this museum and 10,000 members of the general public are going to visit this museum. And your concern about your ego and not being a good historian does not outweigh putting on a hell of a museum exhibit. At the end of the day, the important thing is putting on a hell of a museum exhibit. Oh, yeah. Um, so that's been really good for me in some ways because I think that's something I struggle with is, is coming outside of myself in all aspects and just sort of going, what is the goal and how do you get there? Not how does this make you feel or right. how does this reflect on you or just what do you want to accomplish and why and how do you get there? Um, and this process of creating these exhibits has really uh, been good for me in developing that, I think. And I'm excited. I mean, it's going to be amazing to watch people walk through the door and get excited um, and learn and get critical about the world around them, I hope. Uh, that's the only thing I'm concerned about is whether we've done enough work or we've been able to strike that balance between telling a story and getting people to think. Uh, I think those are two related but separate things. So I'm excited about it. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, this is probably going to be one of the biggest things I've done in my career to date. So I hope it's, I hope it's awesome. I think that uh, the folks who listen to Run It Like a Girl would love to hear about your I Am Psyched program. Sure. Uh, two years ago, two or three years ago, we launched an exhibit um, that travels around the country called I Am Psyched. This exhibit basically focuses on the history of women of color in psychology. Um, one of the things that we have found is that the history of psychology, first of all, used to be primarily a history of white men. Um, so anything you read about the history of psychology told you a lot about the history of white men in psychology and all that they accomplished. And then, of course, in the 60s, there and 70s, 80s, there's been movements to sort of in include more women in the history of psychology. Um, but women of color are still really underrepresented in the history of psychology. We don't know much about who they are. We don't know much about their contributions. We don't know much about how 
what they did changed the practice of psychology. So a couple of years ago, myself and Alexander Rutherford, one of my graduate school mentors, um, and Sherry Miles Cohen, who works with the American Psychological Association, created an exhibit that is meant specifically for young girls um, to learn about women in psychology. The idea is we hope to say, we hope to show them, I guess, that women of color are psychologists, um, that they can be psychologists. We want them to see themselves in psychology and feel like it's a welcoming place for them. Um, part of the good thing about that is just simply then you end up with more women of color in psychology. So we created this exhibit, uh, very basic, really, and it has been traveling around the country for two years now. It's been to, uh, I, I would say it's probably been to about 20 different sites at this point, and we already have bookings well into 2019. So it was much more of a success than we had ever imagined it would be. Um, and I'm really, really excited about that. It's another one of those things where now I'm sort of trying to figure out, like in the same way that writing was something I felt um, gave me room for activism. Now I guess I'm sort of trying to figure out how the museum world can be used in the same kind of way, right? So I think there's a lot of room for museums to become sites for social activism. Um, there's this notion in the museum world of soft power. So, and not just museums, but cultural sites are sites of soft power. So we don't have a lot of money. We don't have a lot of person power. We don't have giant corporations standing behind us. We don't have a lot of hard power, but we have soft power. We have lots of visitors. We have people who walk in our doors with open minds. Um, we have the power to partner with other cultural institutions. And we have choices about what stories we tell, how we tell them, and who we tell them to. And there's lots of ways of understanding this notion of soft power, but this is how I understand it. You come to a point where you sort of go in the museum world and any any cultural institution, nonprofit cultural institution, where you go, I've got nothing. I have no budget. I've <laughs> got five overworked people. I I don't have anything to work with here. And you sort of go, but yeah, but you've got you've got the public's eyes and ears. The power of the public, yeah. Yeah. And you've got um, backing of other cultural institutions if you can partner with them. And in the way, for example, that we did for I Am Psyched, I mean, the APA is a a nonprofit institution. We partnered with them. We partnered specifically with the Women's Program Office there. So by sort of bringing these different groups together, I think that you do have this soft power, but it's just a matter of figuring out how to use it um, and also finding some boundaries on how you want to use that because, because you have to stay on the same page with your partner organizations and also with the people who you work with. Um, you know, you, sort of, you can't sort of choose your own social activist agenda and just go after it. But I think you do have the soft power. Another way that I feel like I want to use that soft power is in our collecting as an archives. So one of the things that, was, that has been surprising to me about our collections is that almost no women are represented in our collections. Um, that's a bit of an overstatement, 
women are highly underrepresented in our collections. Women of color are nearly non-existent in our archival collections. And history um, is told through archives a lot. Museum exhibits rely on archives a lot. And what happens is the people who don't make it into the archives don't make it into these stories. They don't make it into the stories that are told based on the archives. They don't make it into museum exhibits. Um, we learned this doing I Am Psyched. Uh, I simply had no photographs of women of color to put in the exhibit. I had no stories to tell. I couldn't find anything in our collections that would help us do a, make a good exhibit on this. So one of the things I've been trying to do since then is to sort of wander around wherever any, anyone will take me and try to convince women of color to donate their materials to the archives. There's been a couple challenges with that. Um, the main challenge is that I feel like it's harder to convince women that their work is important. Why? Well, I have really thought about this, and I'm the same way. You know, I think... I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is, but I, I realize I'm the same as these women. I feel like I go about doing things and I don't think about them. I just go about doing them and don't think about whether they're groundbreaking. I don't think about whether they're important. I just do them, you know? And I didn't put those two things together until just this year, this March. I was at a conference and I realized that I'm exactly the same way. But you know, I'll say to someone, I'll be like, wow, when, when you finish up with this project, you really need to donate these materials to our archives. This is huge. And they'll be like, oh, no, no, these don't belong in the historical record. It's just, you know, it's just my work. And, and it takes some convincing for me to say, you know, this work is extremely important and we would love to have it as part of the historical record. It needs to be part of the historical record. I feel like if I could walk away sort of, you know, many, many, many years from now, having accomplished that, like sort of having our collections be more diverse, having our museum exhibits tell more diverse stories, um, having our institutions sort of utilize our soft power in whatever ways that we can without, um, you know, uh, without sort of changing the mission of our institution, I, I would be very happy with that. That would be enough for me. Your superpower may be writing. I think your superpower is also thinking. Hey, thanks. Yeah. Thanks right. for being here with us today, Kathy. Thanks, Jody. Today's episode of Run It Like a Girl was hosted by the multi-talented Dr. Jody Cairns. Brian Long was the producer. Web design and technical assistance provided by Dan Moak. And music courtesy of the talented Brooklyn Gillichuk.